Hi, welcome to the Therapy Tales podcast, and we have a super special episode this time because we've got guests. So this is me, Dawn, the human therapist speaking, and I'm sat here with... Jess Probst. I'm a dog trainer behaviourist today. And our special guest over there in the US is... Mike Shikashio. That's me. <laughs> it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Mike, um, you're, you do podcasts regularly. I do. I do the bitey end of the dog. So it's a podcast about helping dogs with aggression issues. So we have some parallels in our shows here, which is great. Uh, yeah, it's all about um, dog behavior, dog aggression, and I get to chat with other um, experts on aggression all over the world. So it's been it's been a fun journey Been doing that for about three years now. So perfect. And how long have you been uh, working with the training people and dogs? Oh, about 20 years in the dog training side of things. Uh, I've since moved on to training other trainers and uh, don't get a chance to see a lot of clients now because of my travel schedule, but it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a fun journey working. I started out working with kind of just all kinds of behavior and a lot of fostering of dogs and rescue, and that sort of ballooned into an actual training career and working with dogs and general training, and then that shifted to working with aggression and working with aggressive dogs, mostly because, you know, the number one, one of the number one reasons for dogs ending up in shelters or rescues is because of aggression or behavior issues. So I want to, because of the background and rescue, I kind of want to focus on working with and helping dogs that had the aggression issues. So that started off my journey into that fun arena, <laughs> dealing <laughs> with that bitey end of the dog. And then, um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of worked its way into just teaching other trainers. So I've been uh, very lucky over the last few years getting to travel when it's not a pandemic <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and doing workshops and teaching around the world. So it's been fun. Fantastic. Well, I've also been um, working in the professional in the dog industry for 20 years and very similar to yourself, started off fostering and rescue. And you really get thrown in the deep end um, with the problems there. But I think also for our benefit, different than the new trainers coming out that have only online experience and learning the practical side is invaluable to teach you you know taking the dogs home with you and learning what works what doesn't work oh yeah there's there's no better way to learn than when you're living with the dog under your same roof and sometimes it could bite you or <laughs> or your kids or your you know your partner so you gotta be careful uh, but you do yeah you learn so much from the dogs themselves just just living with them and and learning how they are and communicating with them and teaching them. So yeah, it's a great experience so, when you foster. Um, obviously we have this sort of, if I can call it cookie cutter. So we have the, our, an idea when dogs come to us and um, what our uh, program is going to be for your general dog. So for me, um, let the dog decompress for a couple of days, don't really do much with it, just let it suss out the new environment. Uh, I withhold food, so I offer food by hand, but if they don't eat, and they generally don't, if they're, you know, severe cases, um, and eventually they come around. So the one I've got just now is um, a sister of my own dog, and she's refused food for four days, and to the point where she's so stressed that I was thinking about um, anti-anxiety meds and then she started taking food herself which was fantastic and today she's wagging her tail and she's coming near me if I had put food down and left her I reckon for the next three or four weeks she would still be behaving the same way would you I think that was the case yeah I've seen that a lot where the stress is so profound it's just like humans right they, if the physiological um, things that can happen to somebody or a dog is from that stress and the, you know, being moved or going to a new environment can really impact them. So yeah, I've seen that where they just don't eat for a few days and you get really worried, but then they, they come around. 
Um, and you do have to experiment sometimes, bring out all kinds of goodies, right? <laughs> to see what they will take. Uh, but you get, you get worried, right? Sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, are they ever going to start eating? Is are they going to ever recover? What do I need to do next? And so, um, so this yeah. is um, um, quite a nice segue for us to go into why I sent you a lobster icon, right? So I reached out <laughs> to you <laughs> and, I, and I had to explain myself that this guy's going to think I'm crazy. And now a little bit, but um, that's a different subject, right? So um, I was wor working with uh, fear and anxiety in my head. So I'm thinking, right, the, the cookie cutter approach is when a dog comes in, this is how I, I deal with it. And normally we have um, a normal uh, progression. I would see, you know, after um, 10 days or so, the dog's going to um, come around and start going, right, I trust you, we're, we're bonding and so on. But sometimes you get the dogs that just don't fit that narrative. And there's going to be um, a tiny percentage of dogs that are going to have um, perhaps neurological issues or an imbalance or something going on. Um, and we don't know whether that's genetic or the upbringing, um, you know, environmental factors, all, all sorts. And we might look to other um, other ideas and, and specifically delving into um, medications and, and pharmaceuticals, which I'm always loath to do because sometimes that's the first place for many uh, people. You know, if the dog's anxious, just put it on and it could be long term. And for me, I think behavioural probably first, rule out pain, behavioural, and then, you know, think about it from, from perspective of anxiety. So I'm thinking about that in my head. And one of the things that I was um, thinking about was the amygdala. So Dawn, because she's been quiet for a wee bit, and she doesn't like that. She's going to describe the amygdala for people listening. <laughs> I don't like being quiet. I'm fine with being quiet. You're talking doggy stuff. I'm not a doggy person. I don't have a dog, by the way, just in case you're wondering. I have a kitten that might appear at any point with the bell on her collar, so we know she's here. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I'm interested in neuroscience of the brain, that the, the way the brain works is really interesting, and, and we don't know how the brain works. That's what makes it more interesting for me. So I work by evidence, not by necessarily always the science behind things, um, with the theory of if it works, good, go for it, you know? So, and I think... When, you're, when you do something enough, you kind of get okay with following your instinct and kind of going, well, that, that's a change that I see. So um, there must be a reason for it. So that's kind of the way I work a lot of the time is when I'm working with people, I'm like, hmm, that's working, that's working really well. I wonder why, let me go and see if I can find out the science behind why that works. And so that's where I go at the brain bits, you know, and, and trying to understand which is a bit of the brain. So the part of the brains that are most interesting for me are the amygdala. The amygdala is the emotional part of the brain. It's the part that's developed actually in the womb. It's one of the first parts of the brain to develop. So our ability to experience stuff emotionally happens as the first thing that can happen. Um, the bit that actually allows us to make sense of what we're experiencing emotionally, that's the hippocampus. So the hippocampus takes those experiences and it decides what to do with them. File them off, get rid of them, sort them out, link them to something else. So that's why it's really easy to access emotional memories because you start with the emotion a lot of the time and the hippocampus decides what to do with it. And, and the interesting thing about, um, and how that whole process works, if you look at it from a brain development point of view, the gray matter in the brain starts at about six or seven years old, which is where we start being able to make sense of stuff, but we actually don't have the capacity to have a fully developed brain and fully make sense of stuff until your mid twenties, right? So you're experiencing most of your life, like whole key events in your life before your brain has the capacity to actually do anything with it and lock it down which means things get locked down in a very black and white way, you know, it either is or it isn't. So 
there's no space in your brain to keep random, meaningless events. <laughs> you know, so there's something like 7,363,228 minutes you experience by the time you're 14 years old. Not going to remember all of them. <laughs> and there's, there's no point remembering all of them. So what your brain does is it kind of takes things that it thinks you need to remember that may be relevant in your future, particularly things that could cause you any sort of hurt. And it locks them in and it tracks them all together and it links them all up so that it can really easily get to them in, in, the, in the future. And that's where, so the amygdala is the first point, the hippocampus is the next point, and then things get locked in and make sense. But when I say locked in, it's not hard coding, it's not, it's not genetic wiring, it's learned experience-based stuff, which means it can be reprogrammed. So everything can be reprogrammed unless it is genetic. And that's where it kind of crosses over. That's interesting in the dog things because, yeah, you just don't know. Right. So so you do the same thing that I do, which is you look at the behavior and you kind of go, what's that about? Where's that coming from? What could be the possible factors? And then you kind of intuitively start an elimination process where you have a kind of top down approach. We'll start with this because it's most likely to be this. And you're kind of working your way through and then you go, did it work? No, it didn't. Why didn't it work? What's going on here? And you're going to work your way through your list. And I do pretty much the same thing. But we all understand where these things come from. At the basis got, of it. Have you got any thoughts on that so far? <laughs> You're gonna ask me that question this early in the morning. <laughs> it's early in the yes, morning here me. for me. <laughs> <laughs> and we just started the conversation and Don's got me already my, my brain's kind of like swirling with thoughts. So yeah, sorry, I, I kind of do that. That's the way it kind of works. So I was um Googling. So I'm thinking right, okay, so the amygdala is something important for the regulation mm -hmm. of emotion. What happens if you don't have one? And there are humans out there who don't have one, whether it's been removed because of um, you know, tumor in the brain. Um, some people were born without so they have done some experiments on these people about fear and apparently they don't have um, the feeling of fear they can't describe fear or panic and they did something really cool with them maybe a bit unethical but they um they gassed them with co2 under experiment um mm -hmm. under experimentation to see how they felt and they did go into panic so they they didn't just go oh well this is happening and go unconscious they they went into panic and they could describe the panic and they didn't want to do it again so they remembered i don't want to do that again so even though without an amygdala, there was still a response. And I thought, well, that makes sense because there's animals that don't have one. So my first thought was um, the anthropod and the lobster came to my mind. So I Googled, um, okay, so lobsters don't have an amygdala. I know that, um, but how do they, obviously they're gonna have, like every other animal that doesn't have an amygdala, they're gonna have a response to um, things that are gonna hurt them, right? So um, if, if it's a hot gaseous vent or something, they're gonna go, I'm gonna avoid that. Um, and if they're fighting, they're going to try and, um, you know, avoid things that are going to, they're going to give up before they have, um, lose all their limbs or whatever. So they have an awareness of um, a survival, jumping, yeah. yeah, a survival strategy. That with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> so just before I get to the next yeah. bit, which is where the conversation can, can properly start, yeah. um, just a wee bit on the lobster in case uh, our listeners don't know, they're solitary animals. So they don't live in groups like us and dogs do, because we often talk about the parallels of group living and, mm -hmm. and how we have to behave to live in a group and get on and survive. So they, they're solitary, but when they come across either rivals or mates, um, they can compete and they can um, change their behavior. Um, when they recognize a threat or you know as I say a mate and they can fight over resources of food and territory and uh, sex um, and what they did was they injected lobsters for some bizarre reason they injected lobsters with serotonin and the lobsters that weren't displaying dominant behaviors started displaying dominant behaviors so when we think about serotonin 
what's your first thought? You've obviously had serotonin before. Yeah. So, oh gosh, so many things to unpack here with this conversation. It's great. You know, um, I guess I could speak from, from, from the standpoint where I'm coming from is the, the aggression. So when I see aggression in dogs and, you know, I get that question a lot, you know, as far as, is it nature, nurture, the whole genetic side, is it a sure. learned thing? And it's really difficult to tell sometimes because when you look at aggressive behavior, it's, it's, it's the intent is to make a threatening stimulus go away. So the dog is worried about it. They're threatened by it. They're scared of something that maybe it's a threat to their resource, but their, their goal is to say, I want you to go away from, from here because you're threatening me or you're threatening my resource. And so when you look at that, that's technically also meant for survival, right? So you look at all species have behavior they use to evade threats or else they wouldn't survive, right? So we've got things wouldn't exist, including the lobsters. Uh, if they didn't have something built in, even without that amygdala to, to say, I need to survive. So for me, it's interesting. I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's, it's a really difficult thing to pinpoint when somebody says, you know, what do you think is going on here, Mike? Is it something genetic? What well, part of the brain what, is what my question would yeah. be to you. So if you, you know, the dogs that come along that, I mean, in the past, I, I would have said that they were full of testosterone. And now I'm starting to wonder if it's serotonin that's, that's having a, a big factor. I know there's probably several things involved, but I'm starting to shift my perspective a little. So the dog that comes along to the group that is, um, can I use the word peacocking? So when he pees, he scratches, he's peeing frequently, he's putting his head over other dogs' backs, mm -hmm. he's got a stance up tall, when it wants everyone to see him, he's very forward and confident. So in ethology, we would describe that as a dominant individual. It's a bit of a word in, in the dog training world i don't like to use the word dominance but the guy that is in control of resources and wants to be the mate mm -hmm. did that make sense yep so um, i've always assumed that he was full of testosterone so he's got more testosterone than other males and what i'm thinking now which is um the, the point in all the lobster stuff <laughs> is that the the physiology of the dog and, and of ourselves is um, changeable because of the environment. So if we get this, I'm, I'm imagining this black lab, it's always black labs for us that come across the park <laughs> and are, are full of themselves or cocky, cocky, cocky behavior. Um, and imagine this little guy coming in as a puppy and being given free reign of the house and food on demand. And if he wants attention, he gets it. And he's got toys to play with and everything he, he needs, he's just got it. And his owners are specifically, they're gentle and they're very much uh, anything you want, you can have, you know, giving into his every whim. So his physiology responds to that. Your behavior affects the dog. So if he's releasing lots of serotonin, this is just my, my theory at the moment, but if he was releasing lots of serotonin, that would then change his outward behavior. So um, my, my thoughts at the moment are, let's take a cocky dog like that and see what happens when we put him on anxiolytics, even though you wouldn't do that for a dog like that. What would happen if you try to regulate that serotonin? That was my question. Right, so it's, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. So, so um, as a non-dog person, I get to observe what happens. I get to stand back and observe. Um, and so these dogs come along at the start doing the behavior that, that Jess describes. And then they, they get a few rules put on them, you know, they get shown that that's not okay. Which is um, brand new to them. Which They've is never... brand new to them. They've never had these boundaries before. There is a there is another pack of dogs around them that are all used to this kind of environment and they kind of go, no, buddy, back off. This is not okay. And then what happens is a dog goes from like full on in your face to very subservient, submissive, next to its owner's leg, 
glancing around, kind of going, oh my God, I do not know what the rules of this operation are. I didn't, I'm not used to this. You know, it maybe has a go every now and again and the other dogs go, nope, nope, you don't behave that way. And it goes, whoa, what is this all about? And, and as we go through the walk, it kind of starts going, all right, okay, I'm starting to see it. And then towards the end, it's kind of losing a little bit of the submissive behavior. And if it does it for long enough, it'll eventually start trying again and, and kind of going up it. And, and I think this is what's interesting, right? Because we describe a, a testosterone driven dog, a kind of, and it's been bumped to the bottom of the hierarchy effectively, but that maybe the submissive behavior is the, the lack of serotonin because it was like high and boosted in serotonin. And through that group dynamic, it's kind of gone, there's nothing here that makes me feel good. There's nothing here that makes me feel in control or in charge. And the serotonin drops is one of the potential options. And then what you do is you replace the serotonin that it was getting from um, the resource guarding hierarchy with the doggish behavior, the sniffing, the playing, the romping, the exploring, the freedom, the treats, the bond with the owner. So what you do over the weeks is you create positive serotonin that is not testosterone driven or something, you know, that you, you can sure see that pattern of, of behavior in it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense actually. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I would have to thin slice it a little bit more in terms of what we're looking at. You know, is it the, again, when kind of unpacking what's happening, the why, I guess is the, the bigger part of the question. Um, yeah, could it be a, a serotonin issue? Sure. And that's very common in aggression cases, right? Where we, actually it's a lack of serotonin in, in the cases that I see. Now, again, I'm not a vet or a vet behaviorist, and I certainly don't want to talk about specific medications, but uh, there are meds that are often very commonly used for aggression cases to help that dog serotonin levels, the SSRI class drugs, things like fluoxetine but or That Prozac. tends to be for, for fearful, you know, for fear aggression. Correct. So, yeah, and we often see it in fear-based cases used and used often effectively and sometimes in combination with other meds. Sometimes they use uh, situational meds during certain situations like a dog going to the to the vet or uh, to a certain location in which they need additional help coping with that environment. But for the dog, going back to what you were talking about earlier, Jess, with the more confident sort of assertive dog, um, I don't see it as often used there. So it's kind of an argument like to say, is it a serotonin issue? What's going on from a neurochemical standpoint? Uh, what's going on inside the brain for those dogs? Um, and is it environmental? And here's another thing to add to the conversation is usually when I see dogs like that, that are very assertive, they're not actually very secure. They're insecure. So they're doing those behaviors sort of as a coping mechanism, sort of like the bully in the schoolyard that just goes in and starts pushing everybody around because that's what they've learned to cope with their own anxiety of the situation. And, and so there's the, that side of dogs. There are some dogs, yes, they just go in and they're like super competent and they just learn. It's, it's more of a learned aspect. But I do see yeah. sometimes where they go in and they're kind of like, they're worried about the situation. So the best defense is a good offense, right? They go in and start kind of posturing to the other dog. So that's the way they can control the environment and then gets from the behavioral aspect, it gets reinforced. So their behavior gets reinforced for, you know, going to, you know, putting their head over another dog's back, the other dog's like, Ooh, uh, move away. And then dogs learn that, okay, well, that worked to help me feel more secure. Now I don't have to worry about this dog. So yeah, interesting conversation. There's many layers and slices to it, depending on what we're looking at. Is it, again, that learned aspect, what's going on inside the brain? Is it genetic? Is it something that's happening from, 
you know, the dog's insecurity or are they actually supremely confident about what they're doing? So it's just really surprising that the the injection of serotonin caused um, an an aggressive response. So the dominant behaviors, um, because everything I've read and everything I've believed up till now is that serotonin is the good guy and serotonin helps us uh, feel good where actually it could, it could have the opposite effect (laughs) also. It's cause and effect, isn't it? So, um, is the thing that's making us feel good serotonin or is the serotonin making us feel good you know so um if you feel good i think the the lobster thing was about hierarchy right and yeah we were talking about um the uk and and how we feel in a work setting about hierarchy and the importance for you know in, in the uk it's really important to have an appropriate title and an appropriate rank so that people will treat you differently because of the setting you're in but i used to work for a dutch company and the dutch company didn't care at all about job titles and hierarchy. And, you know, as as a British person going in, going, oh, I really need this title so that people treat me the right way. And I'm going, well, why does it matter? People treat you however they want to. And they go, no, 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 you don't understand, you know? And and that that would cause a lot of irritation, a lot of frustration. Whereas actually getting a promotion and everybody thinking that you're doing really well would make me feel kind of happy, you know? So it's like cause and effect, right? Which one, chicken and egg, which one's coming first? You're getting serotonin that's making you behave a certain way or is your behavior making your serotonin go up and go down? Well, that's, yeah, that's the tricky question, right? Because it's... um you've got the feedback the positive um feedback loop and your negative feedback loop constantly and and lots of factors at play in that do you live with a a group of dogs i have just a i have a group of animals (laughs) i have a single dog and a single cat and they have their own little system worked out on their own as well and um have you ever lived with a group Oh, yes. Yeah, I've had um, as many as 12 dogs in my home, in my previous home, mostly foster dogs. But yeah, I've had uh, as many as three of my own. And that number's fluctuated (laughs) as it goes when you when you love dogs, you have a lot of dogs. Absolutely. And so um, what are your thoughts? Obviously, we're we're told very much from certainly from an academic perspective that we shouldn't follow the hierarchical rule and a domestic dog that doesn't exist. And and they're just trying to cope. Um, And then you've you know when you witness dogs coming in and trying to find their, their place and, and what works with some dogs and what works with other dogs what, what's your take on it do they have a, a, a value on hierarchy uh, yeah go actually go back to dogs analogy with the or talking about the the british or you know the everybody needing a title right and and then other places doesn't matter much i i'm on that with dogs it really doesn't matter so much it's more contextual so you get two people in a room, you know, a couple guys at the bar, right? And they're sizing each other up. Maybe it's games on and they're arguing about the game and they kind of size each other up. That's in that context. And one's going to come out sort of the victor in this argument. But then maybe those two guys go to the library and they start debating philosophy or something. And the other guys has much more information, you know, knowledge about philosophy. He's going to come out the victor. So same thing in the dog world. I think it's very contextual. Like, okay, this is your couch and this is your resting space. Oh my gosh, you and I'm going to growl at you and you're going to move away. And the other dog says, oh, okay, sorry about that. I'll leave that space to you. But then there out comes a raw bone or something like that. And the other dog's like, no, no, that that's my bone because I really like bones and you like your couch. So you stay over there because I'm going to growl at you as you come over here. So it's really two different situations. Neither of them is necessarily saying, okay, now I've got this hat I'm going to put on or this t-shirt that says I'm top dog. It, it's, you know, it's in the context. So that's really the true definition of dominance is the priority access to a resource. And it could be a different resource depending on the context in the day. 
and I, I rarely see dogs that are just controlling everything. That it's like, all right, everything belongs to me. Everything's mine. And, you know, you, and I'm top dog and, you know, all other dogs beneath me. It's, it's so uncommon to see that. It's, uh, for me, it's, it's very fluid and contextual. And if you really look at dogs, whether in the home or even free roaming dogs in groups, it's very fluid. It switches from a daily basis. You have dogs coming and going. You have uh, resources coming and going. You have conversations coming and going about certain resources. And so for me, I don't, again, think dogs form like this rigid hierarchy of like top dog, middle dog, low dog, or A, B, or C, or alpha, beta, you know, all the typical uh, hierarchies we, we talk about. I think it's much more fluid than that. So I agree with you. And, and, I, and I witnessed this. I do understand what you mean about contextual, um, but there's also the, the generalness of it, of, of where, do, where do I sit in the, the way of things. So most of the males that come into me mm -hmm. will have um, no inhibition when it comes to sex. And I have a really unusual structure where my pack of dachshunds are related and they don't behave like normal dachshunds. They, they are uh, very confident. They're not timid. So the dachshunds that I get in um, that are living on their own tend to be uh, quite timid and quite fearful, quite nervous. All the describing warriors to describe a dog that hasn't um, had, you know, had a, a person bringing them up who understood dog is how I would describe it. So um, when they come in, these dogs, to my existing uh, group or family, they very much all will behave the same way towards the incomer. You can't be on the couch. You, you can't go over there. And it's not so much about food. My dogs are pretty cool about food. Um, they won't care if a dog's got a bone or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they've never had a, a problem with resource guarding food, but the couch is where they, they sort of have as their domain. But after the dog starts to settle in and learns the, the rope, so to speak, they start to allow these dogs, these new dogs, and it happens time and again, they start to allow them privileges, right? Okay, well, you're safe to be around, so you can come and sleep with us. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is just one example of, of many, but um, yeah, I suppose it's not hierarchical as in your ABC of, you know, this is an Amiga dog, but for sure when they come in, it's like they have, but imagine that's the same with humans. We are on the back foot when we go to a new job, aren't we? Until we find out how to interact with the people around us and so on. So I think we need to know our place, right? I and mean, we've had conversations before about our purpose. We is need to know our place. Is that the same as knowing our the same as a We need to know our role. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's where you belong. It, it's, it's a sense of how you compare to others, where you belong, what your purpose is in the group setting. I think it's kind of curious because you, you're talking, Michael, about a top dog, you know, and uh, it, it's interesting, these phrases, right? The, top dog is such a key phrase. I want to be the top dog, you know? It's like, where do these things come from? And then there's, there's so much kind of um, generalized understanding. And, and you know, sure. I, I'm sure you're fighting the same thing. And I know Jess fights it all the time, the kind of frustration of why don't people get this? Why don't people see this? Where are all these kind of totally misguided assumptions coming from? But there are things like the phrase top dog, the alpha dog, there's an uh, assumption that there is a pack leader, that all this sort of stuff that comes from the wild, but doesn't seem to translate into domestic dogs. Well, also wild dogs too. It was based on a flawed study, but um, I imagine, you know, these things take a long time to filter into public and it's quite a catchy thing to say. Ooh. I'm an alpha, mm -hmm. I'm a, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I do understand when they describe things. I couldn't tell you who the alpha of my group was because I don't really see things like that. But I do see when, when the dogs come in that they have to, uh, you know what, the best way to describe it would be to, um, the dogs are trying to achieve homeostasis. Um, in the group so 
we need that balance. And if someone's threatening or being overtly rude, I like to use that phrase a lot, you know, they come in and they're trying to be sexy with everybody or pee everywhere or, or you know, whatever. Um, yeah, I think there's a the sort of balance is trying to be achieved and the group help that happen. And as the dog starts to play by the rules, they start to relax and they allow him more privileges and access. Would, would that make sense to you, Michael? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we tend to, as humans, anthropomorphize, you know, a lot of what animals do, right? So we put sure. human characteristics <laughs> and certainly that hierarchy conversation has come into the picture. I think it's with dogs, it's just much more simple. You know, it's it's with them, it's, or most animals really, it's things are either safe or not safe. Yeah. So when they come into the new home, you know, it feels we as humans like, oh, we, this one's my dog's top dog because they lived here longer. It's, you know, they can, they like to uh, romanticize that they have the alpha dog or the real tough kind of like a confident dog that they already have at their home. They bring in the new dog and that's their observation. So maybe the new dog sort of tiptoeing around and just being careful. But for that new dog coming home, they're just navigating. Is this safe or not? Like, is this dog going to attack me if I go near their bone or not? Is this person going to do this or that when they get up from their chair or not? And so it's really just navigating what's safe and what's not. For so sorry to interrupt you. Um, so if a dog came in and raised mm -hmm. his leg on my furniture and my mm -hmm. dogs went to correct him, what you're saying is they're insecure and they're guarding well, that's a little different scenario i Is think it? that's more yeah that so peeing i guess we should kind of look at the behavior so like peeing on things marking is sort of like leaving a calling card. So that could be sometimes a dog is already feeling safe. So they're like, all right, I'm really comfortable in my own skin. I can walk around. I'm not worried about these other dogs. I'm going <laughs> to pee on this couch here. I'm going to. So yeah, there's that class of, you know, sort of characters we're talking about. So um, I think it depends on the behavior. But for most dogs, when I've seen with the fosters coming in there, a lot of times they kind of are, they go start off slowly because they want to make sure things are safe for them. You know, because that's really what trumps everything else. Safety first. Safety. It's, that's why the dogs don't eat for the first few days. Sometimes it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's... Well, there's there's that category. And then there's the the confident ones. And I know yeah. we, we do see as professionals a lot of anxious dogs that I agree with you. The word insecure is, is really mm -hmm. a good word to use. But um, what what I'm got in my mind just now is the dogs that are coming in and they are wanting to have sex and they want to pee and they want to mm -hmm. go. I want to be on this couch. And my dogs will say, no, you can't do that. Um, so they're stopping that behavior, whether it's driven by testosterone or serotonin, whatever is happening in that dog's body that's making him feel like he should display those behaviors. My group are saying, no, no, you can't do that here. And when he comes down a little bit with his chemistry, because I, th I think in terms of chemistry, when he comes down a little bit and he starts to not do so much humping and a little bit softer in his body language and not be so um, cocky again, I'll use that word, um, they then start to allow him access to sleeping with them and so on. So how would you rate that then in terms of the, what we're talking about hierarchy? I think again, contextual. So, um, I mean, if you were to really look at the most base level, we could, we could just say it's that particular stimulus of the dog peeing on a particular area of your couch that sets that behavior emotion of coming over. So that's at the very base level. That's that's kind of when I'm trying to understand something, I want to make sure I kind of look at it at a very basic sure. foundational level for it. Then I'll start to sort of brainstorm about what else might be happening. Okay, so is it because of a learning history? Maybe your dogs have seen that happen before and they've been reinforced by you for doing that. So they go over and like, oh no, don't be on my couch with new dog. And then your dogs are like, oh, 
mom's upset, upset about something. So then they come running over and correct that dog. And you're like, good, good. Or, or even your expression maybe is in a way that's, uh, you know, saying I approve of that message <laughs> that you just gave that other dog. So I might look at it that at that level. And then I can start digging deeper. Okay. Is it because these dogs are trying to send a message to that other dog without any kind of reinforcement history? What's the, what's the function of the behavior really? So I will start unpacking that and unraveling that. And then we can start digging into that neurochemistry as well. Um, and for, as far as, and all, as many other things too, all the other physiological responses and things that can happen when that kind of behavior so happens. So there's many layers that, to it. Yeah. Would you suggest that not looking for meaning was, was better and just going to what's, what's being reinforced and, and trying to change that then? Yeah. When I'm, again, when I'm trying to understand, cause that's not like a necessary and uh, routine behavior, right? It's not something we hear about like a dog sitting when they see a person, right? That's a very explainable uh, we can explain that in many different aspects, but it's most people are going to agree what's happening there for something that's not as common, like a dog going over and correcting another dog that's peeing on their couch. That's a little different, right? It's not a, an everyday thing. So for me, when I am encountered by some sort of interesting scenario, like, you know, you see, you may have seen on YouTube, the videos of dogs breaking up a cat fight, you know, what's the function? Why is the dog doing that? So the best way to, to kind of start understanding is first look at it at the most basic level. Uh, because if we di dive into the start on the other side, be like, okay, what's this dog thinking or what's happening from a neurochemical response? You're going to, we might get lost right in that forest, right? So start out with the easy stuff, then go into a little bit more of the detail. What's the reinforcement history? What's the environment? What are the ABCs there? What's the function of the behavior? Then we start digging into physiology. Maybe the dog was in pain. What's going on from a neurochemical? Was there some sort of neural um, uh, issue going on? Um, all those things we start digging into deeper layers, sort of like just like what we do with our clients, right, Jess? So it's like kind of dig into the details, but yep. start at the basic level first. Yeah, absolutely. You got any thoughts on that, Don? Not, not huge thoughts. We're very dog in, involved at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Don Don thinks if she got a dog, it would ruin our relationship. It would ruin our relationship. Jess would judge me, and she would be right to judge me. <laughs> we wouldn't ever be able to have a conversation again because I'd know I'd be being judged for my terrible dog ownership. <laughs> it already changed the whole world. Every time I uh, I see people with a dog, I'm like judging them now, you know? I'm like, oh, you know, what's going on there? Why are they doing that? Like, the dog's name. Stop using the dog's name all the time. It's not going to, you know, yeah. It's... You're thinking like a dog trainer now. <laughs> no, I'm not. It's absolutely not. No way. No, no She's absorbing it, actually. She's absorbing it by a diffusion, aren't they? It's a subtle um, subliminal work that Jess has been doing on me yeah. over the kind of daily walks and things like that. Well, you know, something funny is I know a lot of human therapists that shifted over to dog training, a lot of them. I feel yeah. like going the opposite way now, actually. I feel like I can only help the people with their own issues first and then <laughs> dogs are the extra layer. Well, as dog trainers, we're already kind of pushed into that role in some some ways, right? Well, well you're not dog trainers, are you? This is the thing that I, that I say to Jess. You're not actually dog trainers. I mean, mm. if people gave you their dogs and you went off and sorted them, then you'd be a dog yeah. trainer, right? But that's right. not how it works. You have to work with the owner of the dog. So you're actually human trainers for people who happen to have dogs. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, yes. and, and so sometimes Jess will suggest that, that people come along to maybe have puppy classes and they come along without their puppies, right? And, and well, because, I'd like them to, but yeah. they don't want to. So, so Jess suggests this because, you know, Jess always has puppies. Um, they're always tra being trained as therapy pups. So it's like, come along to a puppy class and we'll show you some of the skills with our puppies that you can use with your puppy either when you get it or when it's ready or whatever. 
nobody will come along to that. It's like, why would I come to a puppy class without my puppy? What's the point of me coming to a walk or a class without my dog? Because it's the dog that needs training. And it's like, we're not training the dog. If you gave me your dog, it would be fine. I'd sort it. I've got to train you to do it with a dog. And America and might be a little bit more forward than us at the moment. I think we'll catch up in 10 years, but there are places in America where people who have um, the funds will buy a dog that's pre-trained like from six months or so. Right. So rather than having the puppy stage around their kids, they can have a, a dog that's safe. It's done all that stuff. Oh, that's nice. It's like nobody does that here. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested to see what happens with that because everybody wants the puppy, right? Everybody wants that cute little puppy. So it's like, how, I can't imagine too many people wanting to wait. Like, all right, I'll take a six month old because then I'm going to miss all that cuteness of that first four months of having that puppy. The, the right? problem that we have is that they still see that. I mean, we had a, I had a client mm -hmm. this week who had a 10 month old a large breed. I'll better not say it in case she listens, but um, large, large breed bred for, you know, hunting dinosaurs and <laughs> African ones. And <laughs> Um, the the it went for one of our little lab puppies uh, properly like when oh this is fun it squeaks I'll go again so it was um, boisterous you know over the top puppy behavior towards the little puppy but then he went into oh this is prey you know like a cock the head sort of oh I could go and make him squeak again so we we caught him and and well we tried to catch him he was jumping around we stopped the behavior but um they they kind of didn't really take it seriously it was just like. Because oh, wow. people don't see their dogs as dogs, you know, it's the, it's the anthropomorphization of the, of the animal or whatever, but you know, there's this really they're, weird... They're a beautiful dog, hurt a little puppy, you'd think that that would make them go, oh my god, but they just... They go, it didn't really hurt the puppy, it was just yeah. playing, that's what they do, it's just like, it's, it's not really hurting, it's just playing, the, 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 the owners don't seem to be able to see their dog doing a dog-type behaviour. I kind of wander around going, it's just a dog. It's just a dog. You know, they go, oh, my God, I don't want to tell that. my dog to stop and say no. It's like, you know, there was, there was somebody who was like, oh, no, I don't want to. I don't want to tell my dog not to do that. Why don't you want to tell your dog not to do that? Because it just feels really cruel and aggressive. And I don't want to be cruel and aggressive. And you're like, but it's OK if your dog's attacking another dog. No, it's not okay for it to do that anyway. But I don't want to do this, and it's it's the human factor, which is which is why I go on the walks, you know. So they 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 treat their dog like they have human feelings, and because they're projecting their own human feelings onto it, and then they find themselves they, in a situation. They want it to do its natural behaviors, but they don't want to curb the stuff they don't like. No. So we have to find that balance, you know, finding the key to convince owners that their puppy isn't the puppy that it used to be. Yes. That cute puppy that you think everybody wants, you know, from a young age, but they don't, they don't have a cutoff point where it's no longer that cute puppy, do they? Yeah, I think with dogs that people have the, the most or too much information, right? With raising dogs, raising puppies, training. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the, the people that, that we're, we're talking about there and that kind of, you know, characteristic that we're seeing is they're getting so much information that they don't know what to do, right? So they're like, yeah, all right. So, so like, like with all of the obviously changes in training and behavior, a lot more positive methods, but some people I think have taken it to such an extreme because they're in the interest of, you know, not doing the bad things, throwing up air quotes here, but not doing the bad things that they might never want to actually do anything like that and that can be okay for some dogs and turn out just fine but that can be a problem with some other dogs and then of course on the other end of the scale you have people their information they're getting from online is the opposite you know scold your dog punish your dog and all that stuff and and so i think it's a function just like anything else in life right is is your experiences and what you're learning about it but dog information is 
probably wor worse than human like psychology, right? Would you agree? Would Tom, you like to be the information like online? A, I know. Would you like to be a brand new owner at this this day and age? If you were just getting into it now, it'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, I guess it depends. If you if you if you're good at filtering information, that's one thing. Because there's there's great information now online. It's just finding it, and getting getting it into people's hands. I haven't because... I haven't met anybody that's come along. Well, I mean, obviously we're biased towards people that are looking for puppy classes. Um, anyway, I, I'm not meeting people that want to do it on their own. But um, I haven't met anybody that's doing anything really bad like there's no hitting like the newspaper thing on the nose that's gone years ago I haven't I've had that for 10 years now you know everyone seems to be um doing really positive stuff but as you say we think it's gone the other way where we see people's well we had somebody recently come with a lab uh, I think 10 months and it was clawing at me and jumping at me and, and really hurt me and I said have you have you tried saying no to him and she said well I'm not supposed to say no I've been told you don't you're not allowed to tell the dog not to do things mm. he has to do what he wants to do and I didn't actually know how to reply to that. <laughs> You didn't have to, you just looked. I just it was the like look, the look said it all, just it was fine. <laughs> but it's it's like you know, in the 60s, Dr. Spock and that book about how to bring up kids, you know, yeah. leave them crying. Don't if they cry, don't go to them. And you know, millions of people followed this guy's advice on not attending to crying babies. And these mm -hmm. these kids are adults now and living, you know, this is this is the thing, right? So there's lots of information out there but a very small proportion of it is balanced is balanced from people who practically do it who have practically lived it who've dealt with the problem dogs not just the kind of nice simple a to b or the ones that have only seen the dog when it comes into their class they don't see all the stuff in between when they go out on walks and things like that so so if i was a new owner of a dog and i wanted to go right i'm going to do i'm going i'm good at research right i'm really good at research so i i had a puppy a while back i'm really good at research you know we looked online we found stuff we're able to filter for that sounds like total twaddle using a, a british word um and you know i i can filter through it but there was there was nobody that gives me the sort of information that, that i've got working with jess from going on one walk with jess i get more information so so there is lots of information there but where could you actually go to find information that comes from practical use and from understanding the science and all of that balance kind of way? If you were to point somebody, where would you well, say go? I'm kind this? of unusual because I've got the academic background with the, a huge amount of practical with, as I said, the, the rescues and the foster. And I can see from both perspectives, I can see the force free and, and why that's a great idea. And I can also see from the guys in the field that are going, well, actually, when a dog's trying to kill you, you're not going to be like, oh, how can I minimally, you know, you're going to get it away from me, you know, use a slightly whatever. Um, so I can see those both perspectives. Um, I don't know how to cross the barrier between the academics and the not. They seem to be fighting at the moment about um, qualifications. So if you've got qualifications, hmm. um, you don't necessarily have the practical skills, but qualifications count as everything. We're doing <laughs> every industry. It's the same in my industry. You know, you can go online, you can do an online therapy degree um, or even just a course that lasts, you know, two days. And then you can be a practicing therapist. And that's it. And you can charge whatever you want to and don't have to have any governance or anything wow. like that. It's just it's like that in, in all sorts of industries. Now, then there's those of us who make sure we have governance, make sure we have insurance, make sure we do the, do the work. But, you know, you, anybody out there. So how do you pick? How, how do you know what the One right thing to do? The things that are worrying me just now, I'm not sure if it's the same in the States, Michael. Um, I've been reading a lot of reports coming in from rescue dogs that are done by clinical behaviorists. Um, so. Uh, my, my, my behaviorist title is through the CFBA and that has been through, um, you know, uh, 
interviews with professors and sending case studies and I have a degree um, but it's not really relevant specifically to canines um, it's biochemistry so um, yeah the clinical behaviorist I think is a, it's like psychologists you know in the yeah. human world is a little bit different but one of the things I'm reading from these reports is that they always seem to come back to pain um, and even when I've had the dog the same dog living with me so I'm talking about the Vizlas and also Odie the wee um, Kenny uh, Blue um, that they're they're spending quite a lot of money getting MRIs and x-rays to find out the source of the pain only to find out actually it's not pain at all it's behavioral um but you know if I touch the dog here and it yelps it must be pain but actually this is what the report said touch the dog oh it yelps so therefore it must be pain that's not very scientific at all because really what you want to do is touch the dog over several days in the same place and touch it everywhere else and if it only yelps in that one particular place consistently then we could say maybe there's pain there but if it's yelping because you touched it and you can't get near it again how on earth could you say that was pain that could be anything right that could be don't touch me so um I'm, I'm concerned that we're going down the route of um we're no longer training we're just gonna give everything pharmaceuticals and, and say it's pain related because only aggressive do only pain is causing aggression nothing else what do you think yeah i think again many things to unpack here so i think um what you the information you're looking at is, is depending on the culture it's coming from so sure. let me dig let me go a little deeper with that so if you're reading clinical behavior reports and same thing here in the states if i'm reading a behavior report or even information whether it's coming from a website or an article or even social media from a particular organization it's going to be very skewed towards a particular reason for those behaviors so certainly the clinical behaviors and at least the vet behaviors here in the states you're going to see pain often pointed to because that's what they're getting referred to a lot is they're getting referrals from other veterinarians or trainers. Um, they're looking deeper into things. And one of the deeper diagnostics is looking for pain and doing those MRIs, those CAT scans, those pain trials, all those things. So I do think if you're looking at that information from that culture, again, air quotes up, you're going <laughs> to see a lot more of, okay, pain is the issue. And I think that's a, a good thing also because pain is often highly underdiagnosed in many of our cases. So it's, I'm glad that that information is getting out there in terms of, hey, look for pain or underlying medical issues in many of these cases. Um, that being said, though, you know, as you to go back further into what you're, you guys were talking about before was the, um, you know, again, the, the degrees and the certifications and you're talking about that. And I'm like, that's to totally my experience when I was in the UK and like in that side of the world. The, they they take that stuff seriously way more than any other country I visit or any other area location in the world. Like it's degree certifications are super important. But then you go on the other side and if you look at the culture of some other countries and I won't say which country, but I was just um, another trainer sent me a video series of this trainer doing really a trainer, you know, a very well known trainer in this country to huge following think like big name trainer doing the most horrific things I've ever seen done to dogs in the name of training. And because of the culture around this, everybody thinks it's okay. So, you know, you were just talking about this, this client was saying not to say no, think about the dichotomy and the cultures there. So you've got a client learning <laughs> from what they're seeing, the information they're getting is never say no to your dog. On the other side of this, you know, how people are looking at things, you've got a person doing horrible, horrible things to dogs. I won't say what he's doing, but definitely would be in, in, instantly arrested and criminally prosecuted here in the US if that happened. But he's out there in, on social media in that location doing awful things and everybody thinks that's the norm. That's 
what they're following. That's the culture. And so he's got a tremendous influence on all these pet owners doing these really horrific things to dogs. So um, I, you know, to take, take a step back and look at the broader picture of all of this conversation, it's, it's so much about the culture and the information they're getting and where they're getting the information from. Like Dawn was asking, you know, where would you send people to get information? I think, I think it's not so much where I'd send people. I would teach them how to filter that because mm. there's so kids much. are learning how to filter though, aren't they? In, yeah. in schools, are they not? Teaching? No, they're not. So, so one of the things I talk about is, you know, my, my first degree was computer science, so I'm I'm a dedicated geek, which is why I know how to press the record button on my computer. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is, is the way search algorithms work. So, so my first job in tech support was doing tech support for Windows 95 when it was launched. And um, so that was obviously the first Windows operating system that Microsoft launched. And um, I was working in an outsource for Microsoft. So people were phoning in, asking questions. We'd had all the training. And as any of us know who have been trained on anything, the training is how people think it should work, not how it works in practice, right? So you've got all your information and then somebody calls you and how it's supposed to work is not how it's working. So Microsoft has a knowledge base and the most of the Microsoft knowledge base is accessible to the public. There are a few extra articles that are not. So everybody who phoned in was capable of looking for that same information that I had in front of me. But I learned to be able to search the information, turn it into something usable and help a customer on the line with that information. And that, that was a unique skill that most people don't have. So I, I go out in the world able to search, filter, find stuff. And most people aren't taught how to do that. That's the first mm. thing. The second thing is, you know, if you look at something like Google, it is in Google's interest to always give you something that you search for because then you'll Google it, right? So Google wants to make sure that when you search for something, the thing that it suggests you look at has got a really high chance of matching what you're looking for. So it's pure marketing and sales, you know, then you're gonna Google it because Google's really good. So what Google does is it analyzes what sort of thing you're looking for and makes like a meta decision that what you're really looking for based on all your other searches, all your other social media use, all everything you do is this, and this is most likely to hit. So there is no such thing as a raw data search, unless it's the first time you've ever searched or talked about something or looked for something. So um, an example would be, you know, not wishing to talk about Trump, but let's say we talk about Trump. So um, if I'd never had any conversations about Trump, never interacted with any social media posts, and I did a search for who is Donald Trump, I would probably get a whole bunch of matches from when he did The Apprentice, when he was a president, you know, earlier things in his life. I just get a whole random mix. But if I'd interacted with people on any sort of platform about Trump and I had a bias, either for or against him, then the match of articles would match that bias. I wouldn't get all the other articles. I'd only get the ones that match what I'm looking for because Google's gone, you really don't care about that stuff. This is what you want to see. Yeah. Our brains work like that, though. We're more likely to read something that's going to sit with our current... It thinking. is. So, it, it, you know, it's it's absolute perfect marketing. It's perfect for Google. It, makes, it builds their reputation. But a kid, if you say search for it, they will search on Google and they will assume that is an accurate and factual response that they've now got. That is the most commonly matched thing. Mm -hmm. So therefore it must be right. But it's not, it's a biased match already. If somebody else has used that computer and search for it and all this sort of stuff. So if you start looking for information on dog training or anything like that, if you look about positive only, if you look about balanced, if you look about punishment, 
then next time you're looking for something, the things you're going to get presented, online courses, YouTube videos, accounts to follow, are all going to be biased inherently towards that way. So you're no longer getting full information. And that's the problem is most people don't realize that. Kids definitely don't realize that. So yeah, kids are really good at searching and, and digging down in things, but they're getting biased information all the time. Wow. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's one of the reasons with my students, I, when, when I talk to them about marketing themselves or putting themselves out there, I tell them not to identify into any particular type of training category in the training world. There's things like called balanced or force free and all these things. I tell them not to actually put any of that on their, their site or anything because the people searching for that reason, you just mentioned that we want the search results to not necessarily put them in a certain category or a particular thing, just dog training in general to help people, right? Make sure you put language in there that's going to solve people's problems and help them. And then once you get them into your site and you get that there, then you can start talking about all the stuff you want to talk to them about, but to, to impact the greater numbers, right or a culture like i was just talking about you got to get you got to get in front of people first then you can talk about the things but to do that yeah it, it, it's kind of it. double-edged sword on that one so there's um you, you've probably heard of tony robbins everybody's heard of tony robbins mm -hmm. um, yep. not everybody likes tony robbins but everybody's heard of tony robbins um and he does um every year he does a five-day kind of free build your business thing mm -hmm. i think last year there were a million people online that attended this five-day free thing and his, his kind of deputy, a guy he works with a lot called, called Dean Graziosi, um, did most of his five day because Tony had lost his voice because if you've ever heard Tony Robbins, he shouts a lot. And <laughs> he'd lost yep. his voice. The doctor told him to shut up, basically. Um, but, but Dean had this really interesting approach to, to how you do this sort of thing. So, so he talks about finding your dots, right? So um, let's say that you helped dogs with hip problems. He says, right. Your audience is not everybody in the world. Your audience is also not everybody with a dog. Your audience is also not everybody with a dog with a hip problem. Your mm -hmm. audience is actually people with dogs with hip problems that are looking for an alternative approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the challenges when you're, when you're doing your business and you're building your business is that how, how do I market? How do I reach people? Mm -hmm. And actually whilst a splatter gun approach of just firing off to everybody might work, it's a bit hit and miss. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is you need to find your dot. You also hear it called the customer avatar. You might've come across that, which is, you know, my ideal customer is Jess. Mm -hmm. Jess has two dogs, you know, one's a really old one, one's a young puppy. Um, and the young puppy is behaving in a way the old one never did and is desperate to get some help, you know? And I my ideal client doesn't have a dog yet. <laughs> <laughs> Jess is getting a bit disillusioned with dogs. Um, <laughs> no, with people, dogs are fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, so then every time you write any, any of your media content, any time you talk, you talk to Jess. You don't talk to everybody else, you just talk to Jess. Or you talk yeah. to the person with a dog with a hip problem that is looking for somebody that can help them. So, so yes, while it might be good to just say, don't be too specific, don't narrow your market, Actually, that means that all the people who are being specific are not going to look for you. They're going to look for the people who are specific. Yeah. But the specific yeah. things that you want to do might not be um, 
you might put words like uh, like hooks, right? They're going to be you might put force free positive only because they're little little fish hooks that you grab people, and <laughs> you know then what? you go. You're both right. Yeah. Okay. Just use all the words. <laughs> well, don't, no, don't subscribe to don't subscribe to one area. <laughs> just just put in one page. Oh, force free trade in the next page. We're very balanced in the next page. What else is there? But, but, but yeah, uh, but. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you know what you're doing Compulsion, is that's what it. you're looking for is nodding head, right? You want people to go, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. That's that's what you want to do when you're talking to people. And that's so that's when you're when you're looking, you're actually wanting to, to talk to the people who have the problems that you're dealing with. So you want to say, do you find that you used to have this lovely dog that you could cuddle up on the couch? But now, if you try and go on the couch, your dog's barking at you and stopping you. You know, are you <laughs> finding that? Yeah, but it is, you know. And then somebody goes, Yes, that's me. That's the problem I've got. And then they're going to look at everything else on your page and go, And then you can say, You know, I, I like to beat them or I like to cuddle them to death or whatever. You know, you can say whatever you want to. But the first thing that's hooked them, the little fish hook, has been, Yes, that person knows me. They're talking about my stuff. You know, it's it just, it's really, the, that's where the human psychology part of it becomes really interesting. Michael, do you find? that um trainers in, in america have become niche um so here they're generalizing with everything there's nobody that does does just puppies or just aggression or just separation they seem to do a bit of everything which i think has its own problems but do you find that there's a sort of um, niche and segregation it's getting there it's just like the medical field right it's you're, we're seeing specialists in certain things so we see general trainers that kind of like your general practitioner physician that sees everything and then sends you off to a specialist. And so we're definitely seeing that more. We're seeing separation anxiety specialists. We're seeing aggression specialists, leash reactivity specialists, nose work, agility, you know, those kind of uh, more focused areas, which I, I encourage people to do because just like Tom was saying, that's, you know, specialized, that's what you look for. You don't want to be the, the, the all end all of all things because that's actually not good for your business. What's good is if you focus on a particular niche. And that's sort of what I've done is focus on the aggression and dogs part of things. Um, and, and it reduces the competition, right? So you've it, got trainers it, that will speak to each other then. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of trainers actually have a hard time going to that because like, oh, no, how am I going to just focus on one thing? Or how am I going to get any business? And that's the best thing you do is actually get well known for one particular thing because that's how people are going to find you. But I like it because people that are specializing are going to get much better at whatever they're doing much faster than if they try to do everything. So the people that are doing separation anxiety, which I hate doing, <laughs> by the way, I, uh, I will I always refer to them because they they really get good at that one thing they're doing so i like seeing that i like seeing you know the trainers doing that because um it's going to help more dogs i think in the long run and people are i think the consumers also are starting to recognize more specialties in in dog behavior and training so it's good to see that as well rather than just hiring your one quote-unquote dog trainer for everything like i'm you yeah know, no just... i agree i think it's it's gonna hopefully hopefully it'll happen here as well um i'd like to encourage that I do with my trainees as well um try and get people to have their have their areas that they're really really good at um and then you know one of mine is is puppy only she just doesn't want to deal with aggressive cases um she just wants to do the nice ones and that's great <laughs> that's really good yeah. um one last question because we're obviously um about an hour now um so this is quite controversial but um I want to see what you thought about it so um having your dog be your uh, marketing tool that's terrible but mm -hmm. having your dog a trainer as a trainer um should your dog be well behaved 
<laughs> I think um, it depends, right? What well-behaved means and what the yeah. dog's background is, right? Because we can't put unrealistic expectations on our own dogs either. So somebody might, you know, a trainer might adopt a dog that's got severe thunderstorm phobia, for instance. And, you know, is that marketing where I can take that dog and, and quote unquote fix that that thunder phobia? Or is that dog going to con continually have issues for the rest of its life to some degree? We can make it better, but is it going to completely change to like a dog having no fear of thunderstorms? Probably not in most cases. So I think it's unfair to say, okay, I'm going to take any dog and make them absolutely perfect, just as we would a human. You know, it would be totally unfair. Like if somebody adopted a child, be like, oh, you dog's a therapist, go adopt that child with these issues. And then it's, I want to see it be completely fixed and changed within 60 days with your patented program <laughs> that you're going to do, right? So I think, yeah, it's, but I do think we should be able to demonstrate um, changes in making a dog's life, quality of life better. That's, that's really, for me, what's saying that, hey, trainers can, can make this dog's life better, whether it's whatever the issue is, whether it's maybe a little less pulling on leash or maybe getting to explore the and sniff the grass more. That for me is what I'm looking for, not sit down, stay, come perfect heel and all that stuff. I mean, it's it's nice and it's flashy and it's great for certain aspects, but it's I don't I, I can't stand when I see that on social media, like some dog being put through the, the, the rigors of like walking perfectly on leash or off leash downtown, you know, and sometimes in the States here, they put an e-collar on the dog and it's meant for marketing, but the dog's not happy at all. You can see the dog's face like, this is terrible, <laughs> right? And so I, I unfortunately don't agree with that aspect of it. You know, I think, sure, we should be able to show some improvement, yes, but it, it's not like, you know, some of those social media things we're seeing. It's a terribly unfair for the dog and for, and putting an unfair, uh, expectation on other trainers out there right well the reason I ask it is because um, I mean you've been around quite a bit as well um, and when we got into this industry I'm sure it was the same in America uh, trainers didn't really have qualifications uh, back then they had mm -hmm. a, a good trainer would have a record of probably competing and doing well right. in the area yeah that's that was the barometer at one point right like having titles you got to have a title on your dog before your trainer but that's, yeah, you know, that's ridiculous when you think about it. It's like well, kind uh, of, but then the other opposite side of that is that you've got qualified trainers coming out and I'm not talking about anyone specifically because I do have a few trainees mm -hmm. that are the same, but over lockdown, they went and, you know, paid their 20 quid to get an online certification or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're now trainers. But, you know, does that qualify you as a trainer? What if you're training a dog with so what if you're training clients dogs with um, aggression, aggressive behavior yeah. and your own dog? hasn't isn't able to be around dogs do you know um that's kind of like saying i'm going to teach you to do agility but my own dog can't mm -hmm. do it and that kind of fries my brain a bit i think it's again make if you're seeing improvements that's the, the more for me i you know if i hear of a trainer getting a dog and then it gets much worse i'm going to want to know kind of why because some <laughs> do, but again that could be totally fair maybe it's got a neurological issue maybe it's something else maybe it's on a medication that's making things worse in the in the short term so i never fault the trainer you know in, unless you see a pattern of course of really bad stuff happening but most of the time everybody's trying to do best for their dogs and so we might not see that improvement all the time it's cuz it's totally different it's 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 a much different type of you know when we're talking about behavior you know so if you have separation anxiety or aggression we're talking about emotions and underlying things happening versus learning so teaching a dog how to sit or stay or or do the weave poles and agility it's a lot different when you think about it because those are operant behaviors we're looking at versus behaviors that are happening that we're trying to modify 
that are motivated by emotions, right? So through classical conditioning that we usually do in our cases or desensitization approaches. Um, so for me, when I see a trainer that's, that has a dog that's, and they're working with aggression cases, I never say, oh, look at your dog. They're terrible. Why are you taking aggression cases? <laughs> you know, it's, it wouldn't be fair. It's not fair. It's, you know, each case is unique as we know. So good. Have you got any questions for us? We covered a lot of things today. <laughs> we did cover a lot. This has been a great conversation. We had a lot of different angles we went through, kind of <laughs> weaving in and out. So, so I loved it. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast, Michael. Yeah. That's, that's the way it kind of goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, controlled chaos, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, small C on the controlled. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you for having me. It was great. <laughs>